Off the ball. There seems to be more sympathy for Argentina and support for Argentina. And a lot of that has to do with love for Messi's last dance. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. You're welcome along. Sunday Papers coming at you. Joe Malloy in this afternoon. So I'll start with the back pages. Sunday World, we have Messi. Messi's final shot. This will be a theme, obviously, across the back pages. If Argentina win today, he could surpass Maradona, Pele and Ronaldo as the greatest player of all time. So picture of Lionel Messi back page of the Sunday World. We have the Mail on Sunday and this is Hugo Lloris who was given his press conference. We Are Ready is the headline Mbappe out to destroy the Messi fairy tale. We have Sunday Independent. Change attack here. It's at Crow Park last night so it's Claude McGrath and Tara Kenny of Sarsfields. They're celebrating winning the All-Ireland Senior Camogie title uh, last night. They're from Galway. They beat Lockheed Shamrocks 214 to 114. Dermot Crow's match report inside. Lots of match reports on that game across the uh, pages. Uh, Sars, Stars, strong finish sees Galway side retain title. And then beneath that, there'll be at least six months, if not a year of this, Bellingham. So Bellingham uh, bidding war is at boiling point. Manchester United and Eric Ten Hag very keen to enter the fray. It still seems that Liverpool, the favourite destination of Bellingham, but Manchester United are moving in and they're going to make the argument that he's better off coming to Old Trafford, that he'll be uh, the leader of the team as opposed to just slotting in as yet another world-class player at Liverpool or Real Madrid or Manchester City. So that's their pitch. Come to us because we're worse, uh, basically, seems to be uh, the, the thinking. Sunday Times front page. It's a picture from the Aviva Stadium last night. Very, I mean, it was oh man. If you have bad memories of watching sport in COVID, it was just like a grim reminder of what it was like. Running on empty is the headline. Ulster grabbed two bonus points in defeat to La Rochelle. Shame there was no one at the Aviva to see it. So the Ulster La Rochelle game was moved to the Aviva Stadium because the pitch in Belfast wasn't fit for purpose. At twenty nine thirty six, La Rochelle won that game. It was a bizarre game. La Rochelle were, I think, 20 nil up at half-time. It was over, and then Ulster came back into it in the second half a little bit. But it was never really uh, in danger, despite the seven-point gap in the scoreline. But they did get a losing bonus point, which was the um, the big win. And then, an uh, interesting back page here on the Sunday Mirror about Messi. Messi's a French fancy, so Deschamps even admitted that some France fans want Argentina to win the World Cup because they love Messi so much. So it's that kind of... Uh, a build-up to this afternoon's World Cup. I am conscious that, as you're listening to us on the radio, that the World Cup final has just started, and lots of you will be listening on a Monday morning, as I know a huge amount of you do, which is great, by the way. It's always very nice when we see you, us uh, riding high in the charts on a Monday uh, morning. So we'll talk about the World Cup in general terms, which hopefully won't be contingent on who wins. Very happy to say, Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Stars here in the studio, and Shane Keegan, Manager of Cove Ramblers here as well. Gents, you're both very welcome. Thank you, Joe. Thanks. So a couple of World Cup stories which did catch your eye and you did enjoy. For instance, Kieran, you picked out Wayne Rooney talking about Messi mm. in the Sunday Times, and Wayne Rooney very clearly of the opinion that Lionel Messi is the best there has ever been, best I've ever seen, and he elaborates what it's like to play against Lionel Messi, which is very enjoyable. Yeah, like uh, we, like when I've been in here before, and when other people have been before in here before, and you've, you've mentioned this before, Joe, that uh, so many people pick out Wayne Rooney's columns. That I, I don't think he's had a dull one since he started doing with him with the Sunday Times, and he just has a unique insight and. Um, is able to express it with with the uh, with the help. I presume it's ghosted with the help of whoever is ghosting it. But like it, it gets across. I always feel I've learned something, which from a lot of columnists you don't you don't get that impression at all. But he starts off, you know, he, he drags he draws you in because you know goes back to the twenty eleven Champions League final between Manchester United and Barcelona. Um, and like anyone who remembers that Barcelona performance, like Rooney describes it as one of the best team performances he's ever seen. And I, I don't think many people would argue with that. That it just played at a level that you know was was be nearly beyond description. And Rooney uh, says he actually had the match ball that they well you know during these games they play with a few balls really, but the, whatever the, the match ball that they finished with, he has it because he grabbed it. He sought out Messi, uh, David Villa. And Pedro, the three guys who scored the goals for Barcelona, and got them to sign it. 
and he signed it as well because he'd scored. <laughs> he, he autographed his own ball, so, but uh, he wanted a souvenir because it was such a momentous occasion. But he makes a few points here about playing against um, uh, Messi. And, you know, when he, he, he mentions in that uh, same breath that uh, Xavi and Andres Iniesta, that they had this low centre of gravity and balance, which added the close control meant there no getting to the ball. And that's such a, a common trait with so many of the great players over the years, that they had that low centre of gravity and that balance was key. And balance is key maybe to the way he dribbles as well, because, you know, the, 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 you get bombarded with all sorts of stats and with this World Cup even more, because they're throwing uh, FIFA have come up with ones that like receptions and turnovers that weren't generally being flashed up in your TV screen. But Messi has walked more than any other player this World Cup. But he's also dri- uh, he's covered more ground by dribbling. Uh, and he, uh, what Rooney says about him dribbling is it's a difference between him and nearly every other player who dribbles that he's always moving. There's almost never a point when he stops on the ball. He takes off with it, and if the path is blocked, he'll pass the ball to get it back. You go and press, he pops it off, and then you might switch off. In that moment, he comes alive. You see it happening a lot. He passes, defender gets lazy for a split second, and Messi takes the return pass and is away. And it takes so much to deal with him that it's tiring. He wears you down until he becomes almost impossible to stop. Well, that for me is the quintessential Messi one-two. Yeah. Where it's dribble, 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 touch, 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 little pass into somebody and he just goes by the defender that was watching him. And as Rooney says, you just split off for a moment or you're getting tired and he's in it around you and he's playing with such good players. They give it back to him and all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And there's a thing as well, um, like the amount of times I was joking about it earlier, but the amount of time the last dance has been referenced in, in relation to this World Cup final because, uh, you know, people going back to the Michael Jordan thing. And just people want the grand finale all the time, but it generally doesn't happen in sport. Like, you, uh, you can give so many examples. Like, the last sound Muhammad Ali heard as a boxer was a cowbell that had to be borrowed for a fight in the Bahamas against Trevor Berbick when he was beaten. It was such a a chaotic event they did run into literally run into a field and take a bell of a cow because yeah. they'd forgotten to get a bell for the uh, for the boxing fight I was there when uh, I was lucky enough to be at the Olympics in Sydney 2000 when Sonia Sullivan got her, her Olympic silver but I was also in Athens 2004 her last Olympic race and people forget this she was lapped in the final mm. You know, uh, I remember going to Brian O'Driscoll's last game, which would have been whatever the was called then, the Celtic League final. And I think it was against Edinburgh, Leinster against Edinburgh. And my, uh, I, I went with the intention of just watching Brian. So I went in before to see him arrive. You know, I went to see him come in the car, but I was just going to describe everything that happened to him in the day, like his last ever game. And he goes off injured after, I think it was 10 minutes or seven minutes. So you just, you don't, you generally don't get the grand farewell, which if Messi gets it, I know when people are listening to it, they know what's happened. Yeah. But that's why there's such a build-up. Like that's, uh, I don't know what you make of that, Shane. Yeah. It always, like, this has become all a bit messy. Is that fair? I sure look, it has. And, and to be fair, you can understand why. Like it's, it's, it, I think one of the papers you were reading out there was that you know this will essentially crown him as the greatest of all time. So if he hasn't won it, is he not the greatest of all time? So silly. Like it's, it, I, I, I don't, it how can one, one game, how can one game decide uh, the entire kind of narrative around a, a player's no, they're, career? They're, they're the worst debates, Shane. Yeah. Because, because I, I think if this, if this, if this like, game changes your opinion on whether Messi is the greatest of all time or not the greatest of all time, then you're not really somebody who no, understands why, football. Why do, why do people even talk about that? Like, I can't remember Pelé. we can't do it. Yeah, you can't remember <laughs> Pelé. Like, uh, I remember it, Maradona, and I think Maradona was great. But, like, you have people who don't remember Maradona saying Messi's better than them. So why do yeah. people get into uh, that? Listen, everybody's <coughs> opinion should be, how would I know? I haven't seen everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? I mean, 100%. And people are so emphatic on it. You go... <laughs> The, the uh, Mail on Sunday have a really good graphic, by the way, of uh, tournament distant walked, uh, the, 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 the percentage of time they've walked in a tournament. So Messi is top of the table. He's walked for 58% of his tournament. Mbappe's at 51%, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. And Silva is 48%. So it's not like Messi's walking stats are off the charts for something that's talked about so much. Yeah, yeah. I think we all just watch him all the time, so we really notice when he's walking. Like Perisic has walked for 293 kilometres. Uh, per game Messi's at 3.17 that's negligible 
Yeah, I, but he, but he seems just from the naked eye, or maybe it's just um, he seems to run when he has the ball. Yeah, unless he doesn't run when he doesn't have the ball. Is that, would that be fair? Well, the yeah. bit's fair. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing that it <laughs> you you look at sports culture in in Ireland, be it be it football or, or GA, and you know the talk all the time is like unless I you know a manager or a coach if he wants to. To, to show the work that he's doing, he'll say, you know, no player gets in my team unless they're, they're hard-working. You know, that, that's the, everything is the bed, our foundation of our success or the foundation of what we're going to try and achieve is that we're, we're, we're hard-working. And you hear even a lot of, you know, football managers saying that. And so, so what, would, would you not pick Messi? Would you not pick Mbappe? Because yeah. let's be honest, they don't. No. They don't work hard. They absolutely don't. But you come up with a system that allows them to do the things that they're good at and you, you get players who, like... Do, do the Argent, are the Argentine players really going to say, no, we're not willing to put in an extra 10% each to cover the ground that Messi is, <laughs> is not covering? Or likewise with Mbappe. Like it's, it's, you've got to accommodate. You can't have one size fits all for, for, for players. Yeah. You, you have to be able to adapt. I do think the, the, the Rooney description of him is, is good. Kieran's touched on it there. Like it's almost when he's dribbling with the ball, it's almost like he's teasing you in that he wants you to try and get it off him. As in, look, I'm showing you just enough of it. I'm showing you enough. You can definitely get that, can't you? And then when you go to get it, bang, now he's gone past you. And he's, it's constantly that he's, he's teasing you with it. Um, like, Rooney is kind of talking almost like a manager in that he says, if, 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 I, if as an opposition player you go and press him, he goes by you. If you drop off him, you're giving him the time and space to have the shot or to have the pass. I mean, that's the kind of talk that managers would normally do as how you actually approach a team. Yeah. Um, but it's it's excellent. The other bit that, that jumped out at me was the bit where uh, Kieran Hurry talks about, I, I don't think I've ever heard him speak on the pitch. Hmm. He leads by example, not words. Like It's remarkable that a, a captain can literally not speak on the pitch. Like You compare that to the likes of a Jordan Henderson. Imagine coming yeah. off a pitch and saying you hadn't heard Jordan Henderson's voice, I'd say he never, t- never stops. Has that changed, though? Because I, I was wondering about that because uh, I, I was making the assumption he, Rooney was referring to when he's played against Messi. But like definitely um, there were a fair few times there was a snarl in his face at this World Cup. And you know after games, he had a few words of people... So I wonder, has he, uh, is he a bit more vocal now? Like, there's an interesting bit there that Rooney mentions about Argentina. And I think maybe this is key to getting the best out of him at this stage of his career. Because you ha- I thought he was gone last season. Like, he scored six goals in League One. I thought, like, everybody age catches up in his all. And, but, you know, that he's had this Indian summer. And Rooney refers to that, that Argentina are almost a working class team. In the sense, they're stubborn, hard to beat, and they'll fight. Fight for Messi to stay in the game knowing that if they do the captain will win it for them for them they're a team of scrappers who just don't know how to give in and maybe that's what he needs at this stage of his career that he doesn't need uh, like there's often been this misconception that to win the big prize it's whether it's Champions League or World Cup you need a team of superstars but you clearly don't like Emilio Martinez for example is Argentina goalkeeper would anybody put him in the top 10 goalkeepers in the Premier League? Mm. Like three years ago, at 27, he was on loan at Reading in the Championship. You know, Nicolas Otamendi is nearly 35. He was widely seen as the weak link when he was at Manchester City, you know, yeah. and he's their main state defence. So you don't need superstars, but you need people to scrap and fight, and you need a, uh, a dash of genius. And Messi is that. Did you think it was interesting he called them a working class team? I thought he. Yeah was alluding more to workmen-like yeah. as opposed to working class. I almost wondered, was that a mistake? Yeah, could yeah. be. Yeah, could I, be, I, yeah, I think so. I've never I, heard someone say, oh, they're a working class yeah, team yeah, before. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas you'd say they are workmen-like around Messi. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, workman, workman-like is definitely the case because I, I think I think there's a lot of different people making the comment that is, is the t- in, 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 in their efforts to win the World Cup are they better off that he is literally the only superstar or person you would put in the superstar class there is no Aguero there is no Higuain there is no Carlos Tevez there is literally nobody else there is literally 10 people working solely to serve one man yes and there's a clarity about it a very 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 clear clarity about it even Alvarez I mean the amount of you know Alvarez is expected to be in front of Messi when uh, Messi has the ball be behind Messi when Messi doesn't have the ball like the, you know, all the pieces. There's there's quite a lot of good pieces. I know Ollie Holt and probably the one I've dug into most is Miguel Delaney. But I am interested, genuinely interested to know because I've I've heard your comments a good bit over the last week or two. So would you be shouting for France today? Yeah, you would. Yeah, I really don't want Messi to win. Why? I am sick of hearing myself talk about it. So I bore everyone, and bore off is a very understandable <laughs> response. 
I think him taking 25 million from Mohammed bin Salman this year. And have you seen the videos of him in Saudi Arabia and the the tourist ambassadorial role? And if ever a player didn't need to do that. And that... Lionel Messi, who's worth it. Yeah, good. Well, I, I do. I do a row with Eamon Dunphy about that this week because I was talking to Eamon, and Eamon wrote a piece a few weeks ago about Beckham and, you know, putting the boot into Beckham over being a, uh, an ambassador for Qatar. Yeah. And I was saying to Eamon that, no, Messi has taken even more money and taken money to be an ambassador for Saudi, which is a far worse regime than Qatar. Far worse. You know, but people are blinded, like. Uh, by his ability as a footballer, and they don't want to get into that. But it is part of the messy story, and he can't be ignored. And you can, you can love the art and not the artist here. Yeah. So when he turned Gorvidal inside out the other evening, I had that involuntary oh, as well, and it was kind of glorious. But the general refrain from everybody that he deserves this, and I really hope Messi wins the World Cup, it does leave me a bit cold. And there is a hypocrisy. Why is David Beckham the most maligned figure at this World Cup almost, and Messi is the most beloved. On the eve of this tournament, with Bin Salman sitting in the stands alongside Infantino, mm. there was a piece in the New York Times that just in the previous week, 12 men were beheaded for non-violent offences. And do you think they had a fair trial? Mm. And he's taking money off them and saying, this is a great place, go and visit Saudi Arabia. It's a wonderful place, wonderful people. And he's worth a billion. And he doesn't need to do it. So I think there is the halo effect. And we assume because he's such a glorious, like beautiful footballer, this in some way must seep into his personality. And I think it's fairly obvious the opposite is true. He cares about one thing himself. And mm. I watched on Argentinian television. There was a journalist and she was saying to him after the semifinal, you know, listen, we just have to say whether you win or you lose. Okay. Yeah, I thought Thank that was you. Awful. Thank you for all you've done for us. As if this is altruism. Yeah. As if he's not done it all for himself and for the, the billion that he's amassed. But I was surprised how that interview was, um, that that interview went viral, that clip, and people saying it was great. You know, that, that, but uh, no, it wasn't. It was completely wrong yeah. in that context. Like, you can't be... Like you can't, if you're a sports journalist, you have to be a journalist first and a sports journalist second. Well, that's gone. It's, it's going. And I well, think, so, it's not I think gone. social it's not media gone. It's gone with some people, it. but it's, yeah. it's not gone completely. But, but it shouldn't. But so I'm, at the same time, Shane, he's been such a beautiful part of my footballing life. for the yeah, last I, I can't get away from that. Just decade plus. So it's a bit strong to say I'm actively cheering against him. But this general sense that I'll be so happy for him watching him parade around with the World Cup trophy, I'll think to myself, no. See, I'm, a, I'm able to kid myself into into almost separating Messi the footballer and Messi the person. And, I, and I'm allowing myself to do that. Like, I am kidding totally, myself by totally doing that. Totally acceptable. But, but like, you, say, you know, you saying, you saying that he's all about himself. Yeah. So that definitely makes sense for Messi the person whereas I'm t- when you say that my good instinct was what does he mean he's all about himself he's a, the best assist I've ever seen because I'm thinking football Sorry, I've yeah. instantly thought football and and I think I think if they have managed to pull it off if they do manage to pull it off um, look we don't know what way the, the final will play out but I do think it's brilliant that the two defining moments of the World Cup for Messi at the moment are both assists I think that sums them up Brilliantly, that for all all the goals he has scored, mm. the difference between him and uh, Ronaldo or whoever else is that he clearly takes as much, if not more, joy in the assist than yeah. he does in the goal. Um, I, I get, I get all that as a footballer. He's, he's uh, you, uh, perfection. You can't say anything against his football. And I'm also not a pragmatist, so I un- like I understand. And we talk about it with live golf, for instance, as a parallel. Mm. If you're a jobbing footballer or a sports person and you were offered life-changing money if any of the three of us were offered life-changing money from a regime that we might have distaste for it would be very hard for any of us to sit down with our families and say I'm going to turn that down so I understand that 25 million to Messi what's that worth to us? a tenner you know so it was so needless but then I'm also it's complicated I don't want to go on about it overly there are layers to this this is a young person from a working class background who was plucked at the age of nine and parachuted into Barcelona. I dare say his education wasn't a priority for Barcelona. So if you were to sit down with him and have a conversation about the various aspects of sports washing, he mightn't be equipped to 
understand that and because he's been focused on being the best footballer of all time yeah. he might not have had time over the last decade to get into it so I, I, I don't want it to be like he's a hate figure for me but just it has left me very uneasy when it was this Saudi Arabian relationship first emerged and now I think I'm also reacting to the, the love in that no that it, it's just this this guy is just amazing and I'm, I'm, I'm I am sitting here a little bit not wishing him ill but I've got my arms crossed yeah if that explains it. No, no, I get you. And and it's interesting because it's interesting. It's probably slightly yin and yang in that you've said you said when he when he went past Guardi Guardiol the other night, you went ah oh, Because I appreciate okay. the genius. Whereas do you know when I did that? Do you know when I let out that sigh when I read about him taking the Saudi Arabian money? So I'm I'm focusing on him as the person and then Going, ah, oh, there's this other side to him. Ah, oh. well, I, I, I went. Sorry, oh, why, my, why, my, why did you have to do this, Messi? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, my sigh the other night. It wasn't a sigh. It was an involuntary. Oh, yeah. That's Whoa, what I mean. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, sorry. Whereas on the flip side, for me, I'm looking at, I'm focusing on him as the person, him as a player, and then I see this stuff and I go, ah, oh, is there any need? But I'm quickly enough able to shift my <laughs> my, yeah. my focus back Look, to him as the player. It's, then it's not the world's it's not the world's it. greatest crime. Yeah. No, in taking Saudi money, like let's keep it in perspective. It's not the worst thing we're going to read in the papers today, like yeah, by, by yeah, some yeah. distance. Yeah, uh, could I just say yeah. the the Oliver Holt is a piece in the Mail, and um, I think a lot. There's a fair few journalists that have gone to Qatar. Like some haven't done it, but there's a fair few who who have continued to highlight the the problems with the tournament going there and the reasons why it shouldn't have and have gone out of the way to talk to migrant workers and marginalised communities, etc. And that's hard when you're in the middle of World Cup and you have all the football coming at you uh, and so many stories to cover. But, the, you know, they, they saw they had a duty to do that. And, so, you know, there hasn't... Most of the pieces today, though, do focus on the, on the football and, uh, you know, there, there's not... Uh, there's. Some of the papers have done very little on the, on the wider issues and I think they sh- still should have been covered on the biggest day. But Oliver Hall's piece is good and he makes a very good point around the Messi thing that Qatar have won this World Cup because Mapapi and Messi play for PSG who were owned by Qatar. So as soon as both sides qualified for the final, Qatar knew they could not lose. They would all the bases covered. Their triumph was now complete. And it was a very important paragraph here. The Qatar World Cup was a final confirmation that the fabulously rich, autocratic, repressive theocracies of the Gulf region now rule football. When the Emir of Qatar and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia watched that Qatar-Ecuador game together from the stands, it was seen as the sign of a new entente between their once estranged nations. It is they more than FIFA who are calling the shots now. And it looks increasingly likely that a Saudi Arabia World Cup is inevitable. Oh, yeah. And that'll be another Winter World Cup. And Messi will have uh, paved the path for that. And that has to be part of his record. Well, it's interesting. It's black Argentina are going it. for the 2030 World Cup as well. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, Suarez, Uruguay, it's a joint bid. Suarez and Messi stood with one of them held a jersey saying 20 and the other held a jersey saying 30 and posed as in, okay. let's launch this bid. Subsequently, Messi has become the ambassador for Saudi Arabia. Friendship. And their um, tagline is Vision 2030. Mm. So, <laughs> best of luck with that one, buddy. Credit <laughs> your own nation. You balance there. that. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Ollie Holtzby is great, by the way. So, I mean, he, his, his kind of thread or his, his theme to the opener is that the 2022 World Cup has already been won. It's not been won by France. It's not been won by Argentina. Won it has been won by. And they couldn't have. Uh, Miguel Lane makes the same point. Like they, they couldn't have scripted this better, Joe. It's gone brilliantly. And to be fair, what I like about Ali Hull's piece is he acknowledges the good aspects of this World Cup. Like he says, the tournament was expertly run by FIFA, as it always is. He talks about you know the central venue has worked in some ways yeah. he's attended 25 matches so that's been a joy and he talks about no crowd trouble alcohol obviously a, a factor there but he does round back to the point that Qatar remains a state which criminalises same-sex relationships remains a state where women are second-class citizens remains a state where freedom of expression is limited and remains a state that oversaw the deaths of hundreds probably thousands of poorly paid brutally treated migrant workers during the construction of the stadiums this is a World Cup that not only has blood on its hands, but which effectively prevented a whole section of society from attending. And I think it's it's good that on the day of the final, there is that mm. uh, perspective as well. Can I just say, by the way, on Rooney, just to round off our World Cup chat, mm. the humility 
this piece screams is off the charts. Like Rooney's one of the best players in the Premier League ever and it starts with him taking the match ball on what should be the most disappointing night of his certainly a season and, and one of the most of his career losing the Champions League final and even in real time not just you know he says it himself sometimes it's when you look back in your career in real time and he's he's at their level like you know he's at a Barcelona level and he said I got them I got the scores Messi via Pedro to sign the ball I signed it as you mentioned Kieran because I knew that something great had happened and this ball is still in his house mm. I mean let's put that up for auction and see what <laughs> that goes for and equally he mentions the Ballon d'Or of 2012 I think 2011 and he's in the Ballon d'Or he's in the team of the year yeah. and yet he says that he talked to Messi with PK as his translator and he said it was a funny feeling because there I was in this team of the year with them but I was in awe of them Oh my God, that was, that was an, am- yeah. an, an amazing they were humility. His imaginary teammates, but he was wishing they were his real yeah. teammates, basically. But it just the the only bit that I would have liked a bit more. Initially, I was a bit. So he says, "I've met him a few times outside of games," and then goes on to list again the FIFA Pro events, and uh, that's where I thought he was going to tell us what sort of a person he has found Messi to be away from football. Yeah. Um, and we get nothing there really and initially I was kind of thinking oh, could you not have given us a bit more there and then I started to think about it and I just thought there's probably no more he can give us I'd say a couple of times he oh. met Messi he didn't learn anything about Messi no. or didn't have any in-depth conversations with Messi so there's there's nothing he can give us there really Miguel Delaney makes a great point and again if you're listening on a Monday morning it doesn't really um, change he says this is the first time since 1974 when it was Beckenbauer Cruyff. against Cruyff yeah. that we've had two established superstars like he says Zidane in 98 was elevated to a new level by that final as opposed to Mm. on that level as he went into the final same with Pirlo in 06 so in Messi and Mbappe the two superstars meeting it's been the first time since 74 something you guys have seen not many admittedly I'm not saying I'm a kid but you've seen a few more World Cups than me and Ollie Holt in his piece talked about how Infan Tino had said this was the greatest World Cup ever on a host of fronts. You know, the best group stages, it's made more money, I don't think so, no. the best crowd figures. And Ollie Holt says, makes a point that I hear all the time from his generation. He says, the best football at uh, this World Cup did not have the joy or the quality of Mex- Mexico 1970 or the drama and brilliance of Spain 1982. Now, I didn't see the drama and brilliance of Spain 82, and I didn't see the quality of Mexico 1970, bar highlights. I find it hard to believe that the 2022 World Cup could be surpassed for drama. The drama was at every turn from the group stages right through, right through. It was extraordinary. And equally, the quality of Mexico 1970, I would challenge all of this generation to go back and to watch it because I think there's now this sense of nostalgia whereby nobody will say it's been a great World Cup about any World Cup. Yeah, so I've been watching them all since the 90s. I thought there have been loads of great ones, but I've been indoctrinated or just like a, the panel North and different people saying, ah, no. It's not, this has not been a great World Cup. 1970, 1982 always mentioned. Does this World Cup not yeah, cut but, the mustard? I, I, it's amazing. I genuinely think, Joe, when you deprive anything of its context, it's hard for it to stand up. Because I remember looking at European Cup fans, Liverpool won in the 70s and 80s, and they were so dull and the play was so slow and ponderous compared to what we're used to now and just predictable. And you thought so many of the players looked ordinary, like a couple stand out, that it's... Uh, it's very difficult to compare it from different eras, you know, because sure. in terms of condition and coaching, tactical news, everything, you know, that just... But how could you like, say like this World a, Cup doesn't have the drama? No, no, you couldn't do World Cups. But it's funny, there's a... That's, there's, there's that's a, not right. I think it's on YouTube, but there's a package... Um, uh, uh, I don't know what is, how it's built. Something like crap... Uh, how how crap were Brazil at Mexico 1970 or something. But it has just got a clips of loads of mistakes yeah. or ball being booted straight out over the line. Or so because, like... And you could do that with any era, but you can... The reality is that was part of Brazil. Like it was as big a part of Brazil as Carlos Alberto's goal. Yeah. That, you know, they weren't perfect, but because we didn't see as much, or people didn't, I, I don't remember, people did, and I mentioned, but people didn't even, uh, see much football on TV point. back then. If, if we had so seen, you really had had latched no on football, to what you did see. If we had seen no football and this tournament blew up in our screens, yeah, yeah. then we would be sitting around in 20 years going, well, kids, it's no 2022. 
the, on, the only bit I, I would agree with is that I don't think there have been very many outstanding teams. I think it's been a tournament more of individuals and individual moments than well, it has what, been what, of terrific what, what team World performances. What World Cup has had a lot yeah. of outstanding teams, though? What was the last great World Cup? So if we're now taking Ollie Hull's point here, no. What was the last great World Cup? No, I, I, I can't remember one that surpassed this for excitement. I thought Definitely. 98 was good in France. Yeah. I, I this is as good as 98. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of football? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the the amount of moments that it's had oh. uh, has just been like, and even the moments that are, are now lost, like, like Holland's equaliser from that free kick is one of the most remarkable things yeah. I've ever seen I, on a football field. I think that's the best World Cup moment. It's incredible. Yeah, at the time I was like, what? Yeah, because it, it, it reminded me of um, you know the Liverpool Barcelona corner that Origi scored, the Trent yeah. Alexander. Because yeah. those are the two moments uh, I think genuinely my jaws dropped watching football, which something was completely unexpected. because <laughs> yeah. how many times, how many freeze corners have you seen in your life? Like thousands. And just to see something very different that works. Yeah, in that moment, the last in minute. In that moment, and it'll probably never work again in either example. Well, I have good authority by somebody who's spent too many hours of her life watching sport next to me. That's, and I don't <laughs> shout watching sport ever. That is the loudest I've ever screamed in yeah. a decade plus of watching yeah. sport. It was a, I, I had a very similar chance. situation. My, my wife was sitting beside me when the, that goal was oh. scored as well. And she, like, she wouldn't be into sport at all. And she went... What? How? How they? Well, you, she understood the magnitude of choosing to pass with literally the last kick of the game was just ridiculous. Now I think we've had loads and loads of brilliant, brilliant moments. I think we've also had the just the perfect balance of giant killings yet. Big boys, the, the big the teams winning yeah. when we, and giving us the games that we wanted as well. By the way, there's a good um, piece in the New York Times which is worth a read. Uh, we're not reviewing the New York Times, obviously, um, today, but just on that uh, theme, I mentioned Beckham being like the m- most maligned figure at the World Cup. So the headline, if you want to check it out, is the World Cup's missing mouthpiece. Oh yeah. yeah. And yeah. the point is that Qatar paid Beckham all of this money, and it seems behind the scenes he has refused point blank to do any media, Ooh. and they're getting increasingly frustrated with him, and even. It's referenced the overlap with Gary Neville when they were in Qatar yeah. and there were no questions about any of the controversies. So I think Qatar officials are saying we've paid them all this money. For refund, they Any media for us. So yeah, it's kind yeah. of interesting. Um, we push on off yep. World Cup. We're happy enough. Yep. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Vera Pau has had an eventful week, I think it's fair to say. And Mick Foley um, in the Sunday Times, Shane McGrath writes about it as well. Mick Foley picks up on that theme that at the beginning of the week, this would have looked like a very, very nice one in her world, that she was coming over for uh, a big warm hug, effectively, or to sports awards and there'd be press conference planned on Friday to, I suppose, reminisce on the year. And, and she subsequently has won Manager of the Year at the RTE Awards last night and as Mick Foley writes the jackknife twist though came on Wednesday uh, following on from the Yates report into allegations of serious m- misconduct in the NWSL second report for the NWSL and its player association lumped Pow onto a list of coaches accused of a litany of offences and many of those offences frankly are criminal the accusations against Pow are most certainly not Houston Dash who she coached in 2018, have apologised. They issued a statement apologising for her behaviour and the behaviour of another coach at the club. It said she shamed players for their weight and attempted to exert excessive control over their eating habits. And there were reports as well in the NWSL investigation of outbursts and emotional yelling at the players. And a number of players came forward and Uh, made these claims and there was also a a point in the report that Powell hadn't cooperated with the investigation which seemed very, very worrying and I think to be fair to Vera Powell on on that point there's absolutely been an omission of her efforts to cooperate because she uh, uh, met with the four-person panel and she wanted to record the interview which I think seems like a reasonable request to most people and actually suggests someone with not much to hide. And they refused. And they said, well, if you feel you don't trust us, you don't trust our objectivity. And they they ended the call. And so uh, she reached out again. No joy. So she wrote a 13-page statement 
which was, uh, I guess, her sense of her time in the league and what she saw. And, and, and this was pitched as a denial of what she suspected were the allegations against her, which, again, was a curious thing. I mean, it struck me if I was to say to any of you, you've been accused of something. Do you want to write your denial without me telling you what you've been accused of? No I'd hope in, in all our cases we'd say, well, I don't know what I, I, as opposed to saying, I think I know what you're talking about <laughs> there. And here's my denial. That would be um, slightly worrying. Uh, so Mick Foley sums it up. He says, in a zero-sum game like this, um, there's a, of, of her press conference, uh, it came down to a simple zero-sum game. Uh, do you believe me or do you believe them? So by the, he talks of the press conference on Friday. By the end, she had reduced the entire issue to a zero-sum game. Believe me or believe them? Had she ever commented on a player's appearance? No. Had she ever encouraged players to eat less? No. Uh, she had no knowledge of body fat percentages. If a player ever asked her, she told them not to diet. She had discouraged players from weightlifting, a long-standing principle of her regimes, which she admits. She admits that. She said this is, but she says that is not excessive control over their lives to not want them doing weights. She doesn't believe uh, female football players should be doing much in the way of weights and it'll lead to ACL injuries. The Tyler Toland a controversy of last year came up as well in the press conference in 2021 Tyler Tone's father had said he became worried about his daughter's physical and mental well-being after she lost a stone in a short space of time Power rejected any parallels insisting her only query was whether Toland was doing uh, weights with Manchester City and that Toland was not good enough to be in the squad uh, Mick Foley concludes his piece by saying the situation is unlikely to be over she has the full support of the FAI and Jonathan Hill uh, when she gave her version to the FAI chief executive Jonathan Hill after midnight Thursday he suggested cancelling the press conference she wanted to go ahead with the press conference uh, Nathan Murphy had 25 plus minutes with her here as well and went through it with her and she hadn't actually read the report so it came as news to her one of the exchanges was that apparently a player had lifted up her shirt to wipe her mouth and Vera Pau according to the report had said put it away as in put your stomach uh, and presumably the, the excess uh, flesh away and this was a complete shock to Vera Powell and had no memory of that whatsoever and denied it. Uh, we'll come to Shane McGrath's piece in a moment uh, where, and I think we're all in agreement with his his core point but just uh, in broad terms where this leaves Powell uh, the nature of the allegations and the FAI's handling of it I'm, I'm just curious for your thoughts here because her version of events is completely the opposite to players. It's not even a case of oh, maybe I did say things that I can see in hindsight they thought were harsh but actually they're okay. It was this did not happen and yet the players are saying this did happen. So it's not even a grey area. It's they're completely lying effectively. And that leaves us as a viewing public in no man's land. I, I don't know. How I, to, I don't know what you can say. Like, what can just one person is saying one thing, another group of people are saying another. Well, we can't reconcile. Neither can be proved. They can't correct, be reconciled. Can they? they can't be reconciled. It's, yeah. it's not even a. Oh, I see now. You meant it that way. It's that didn't happen. Yeah, I, I firmly thought it was going to be the way you described that. Yeah, it was a you know interpretation of events. Um, yeah may have differed but yeah like one is saying one thing one is saying another how there is no way of there's no there's no facts here there's no way of either side been proven correct so I don't know how you you, you take that forward no no uh, like when this uh, I saw Stephen Doyle tweet about this whenever it was Wednesday night that was the first mm. reference I saw so I had to look through the board like it's 125 pages I didn't read it all so I sped read it, uh, looking for the references to, to Vera Paul, but it quickly became apparent that most of the, the allegations against the other coaches were generally around sexual abuse or inappropriate behaviour uh, uh, in terms of sexual harassment or whatever. And then it, so it really jarred with me when I saw what Vera Paul was accused of, that it just seemed at a, such a far lesser scale. Not saying that it, wasn't, it wouldn't be something that's worth investigating, but I, I, I don't think it was appropriate for it to be included in such a report. Well, that, and, and, and that's the core, the core of the Shane McGrath piece. Well, yeah. but just, just to come to, uh, just to expand on that, but yeah. um, like I'm doing this over 30 years, like you've been involved in coaching a long time, Shane, you've been involved in the media a long time. It's amazing how often players and coaches bring up weight you know, weight is a big part of it. And even the language around uh, punditry, like I was thinking around this World Cup, like when Uruguay were playing, the amount of times pundits would say, Luis Suarez is carrying a lot of timber. You know, and that's a reference to weight. OK, the amount of times you'll hear people saying, oh, somebody, he or she looks really lean. They look very fit now. They're clearly 
you know, in far better shape than they were. That there's a folk, and and there are some sports, you know, like boxing and. Uh, horse racing where you have a uh, rowing where you have to make weight and you know effectively starve yourself but it, i can see why it's more problematic with with uh, young women when you're dealing with young women because eating disorders are far more common with young women than young men one of the players in the dressing room had an eating disorder yeah. according to the report but but, but she has said um, that there were other issues going on with her life. Oh, she didn't well. put it down to Vera Powell. Yeah, no, she didn't put it down. So I, we, I don't know exactly. Like, but the, 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 like Vera Powell has given a very different version to what was claimed in this report. I think some of the things, like um, the report mentioned outbursts of emotional yelling. Even the most controlled coaches lose their temper and shout at people at some stage, don't they? Fair Would that be fair, Shane? Fair to say. Yeah, so... I I think some of this does seem a bit personal, uh, you know, or there's a grudge just going on involved. But I think the FEI handled this very badly. Like their statement was Thursday night. Yeah. What what was their statement? We basically, we t- it was very short. They said we've talked to Vera, and it's nothing to see. Something along those lines. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, like it is. It does seem to be if you t- and, and we all uh, Shane McGrath's made the point, Mary Hannigan made the point, and, and you all agree, and I think we all agree. It feels deeply inappropriate for her alleged misdemeanors to be in the same report as criminal acts. That is bogus. It's just inappropriate. So that's a starting point. On to how you handle the Pau situation. It seems uh, when she came in at midnight, she talked to Jonathan Hill, and there was the statement, which I will dig out now in one second. And at that stage, Vera Powell hadn't read the report and that the FAI statement said the report had just come out. So I, I don't suspect they had read it in all that detail. They said the FAI is aware of the joint report into historical events in which Vera Powell has been re- referenced. Neither the FAI or Vera had cited this report before it was published. We note that Vera has already expressed her views to the authors of the report. The FAI continues to support Vera and her team as they prepare for the World Cup. I agree with you. I am... Um, I, I think Vera Powell's explanation on Friday was very convincing and very strong. And she's, abs- you know, it's, it's impressive that she fronted up and said, I want to deal with these allegations. But here's where I'm, I'm majorly concerned about the FAI. The FAI are in exactly the same position as us in that, on the one hand, they have this report and this report was well-resourced and credible and they spoke to a hundred different players and they went through thousands of documents and they said themselves they didn't name coaches lightly. They didn't name all coaches against whom allegations were made of various natures, but they did name Vera Pau and they did name people they thought had a case to answer. So the FAI would see that and they would hear Vera Pau's very strong rebuttal. And our reaction as a group was, well, how can we reconcile the two? We don't know. Mm. I find it worrying that the FAI and I don't know to what extent they'd read the full report in those few hours, came out and said 100% support and everything's fine. We're looking out to the World Cup. Surely they have a duty of care to the players to respectfully say to Vera Pau and to all concerned, this is not a witch hunt. However, in the interest of duty of care, in the interest of doing what's right and proper, any organisation in the world would do similar. We're going to independently and quickly and not make it a saga, we're going to independently assess the Irish team environment so that everybody the public and the organisation, everybody is happy that things are being done perfectly and it's a good environment. Yeah. And I don't think Vera Powell would have a problem with that because she presumably, based on her own uh, dealings on Friday, would, 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 presu- you know, would anticipate being completely exonerated. And then everybody can say, great. However, the FAI, without it seems to me, unless they did a lot of work Thursday, and they certainly didn't reveal any work, without talking to any of the players said everything's fine. Vera yeah. Powell mentioned yep. she spoke to Katie McCabe and that's not the way to... I spoke to... What, what's any player going to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Especially when they're going to World Cup in a few months. So does that bullying does, you? Not rock the boat. So, yeah. so in a way, this week for me is, is more damaging of the FAI than of... of, of Vera. It is. And, 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 like, and again, the crime, the, the, the crimes, and I use that word very um, euphemistically, the, the, the alleged behaviour, and we, we'll talk about it, is, is romanticised in most dressing rooms. It's yeah, like yeah. The part of the culture. But either way, the FAI... Like how can we trust the FAI here to, to oversee things if that was their way of dealing with this report? The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Yeah, that's a, and, it, you know, the, the, it raises an issue as well. That 
uh, like John Green was in here last week, um, you know, talking about the treatment of uh, women's sport. You know, the, I think it was a, a club, cl- club, women's club football final. You know, there's very little coverage yeah. on the papers. But if you're going to, if you're looking for more coverage for women's sport and if you're looking for equal pay for women in sport, etc., then they have to be treated the same way you would treat a male team and, and treat male sport with the same kind of scrutiny. And if this was the man, uh, you know, if this was whoever the male manager, the manager of the men's team is, it's Stephen Kenny at the moment, but if this was the manager of the men's team, and the American League in women's football, you know, is, is one of the biggest in the world, yeah. if not the biggest. Yeah. So if this was the, the manager of the Ireland's team who had managed in the Premier League before, and there were accusations made of like it's this. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. You know, it's huge. So you can't, down, you know, you, you have to, tra- you can't downplay it just because it's a woman's team. You can't be selective and say, uh, dismiss it in a two-line two statement. I don't think the FEI would have got away with that if it was a men's team. They shouldn't get away with this. I, honestly, I, I'm amazed. Amazed. And it doesn't, again, it's not a witch hunt. It's just an acknowledgement this report has been published. Let's just all satisfy ourselves. Every, everything has been done correctly. And actually, Vera... That exonerates you and all, if, if the mm. feedback from the players is, is good. An independent person or panel, they talk to the players, they sort everything out and we go from there. So and I, 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 I do think you've explained it well there. I, I, I think from one or two comments that I've read, I do think that some of the station's listeners might have initially felt the reaction of there needs to be an investigation as an anti-Vera Powell stance. No. Um, whereas it's absolutely not. It's Judy because I, players. I, I mean, we'll chat about it a bit more, but I, I couldn't, maybe it's because I'm preconditioned to a, a men's dressing room, but I, I, I couldn't be more in Vera Camp's, well, Vera Powell's camp here. I, I can't, as I say, maybe I need more education. I can't wrap my head around around this at all. Um, even if, even if everything that they're saying was true, yeah, I'm still struggling What's the with problem? mindset, my mindset to see where the actual issue is here. Yeah. Yet I fully agree that absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt, the the first thing that the FAI should have done is, well, let's go and and talk to the players and just make sure everything is fine. Yeah. Simple as that. Let's I mean, go and talk to the players. Maybe and make we sure have to recognise that it's a, it's a far far more sensitive issue. Wait, with uh, women's sport than men's sport. Maybe it is because uh, even like I was just thinking there, like if you read Jim McGuinness's book, like Jim McGuinness, you know. He, uh, he put pressure on Ryan Bradley, I think, to lose three stone. And there's a lot about that in the book. You know, just to tell someone to lose three stone is difficult, and he hounded him. He did. But he also got Rory Cavanagh to put on two stone. You know, so the, this weight just comes up all the Alison, time. Karen, we, we, we start, I, I'm probably going to leave myself a little bit open to criticism here, right? But so we started pre-season yesterday, mm. okay, with co Ramblers, okay? The start of pre-season yesterday was a battery ram of testing various different tests that were, were being taken about the players to see where they're at so that we could tailor their pre-season to their individual needs, okay? Yeah. Now, obviously, you're wait- I'm almost wondering, am I wrong to have weighed them in? Like, I'm, I'm starting to really, really wonder what is uh, allowed and what is not allowed. Yeah. Um, like, what Shane says here in his column is, the best sports people are the fittest, and those struggling to reach those standards will be told what needs to change. And if they don't make the required adjustments, they will be discarded. Yeah. Like That's 100% where I am at the moment. That is 100% the way I, where I am at in I my think, dressing room I think we all, to be fair, read the, the accusations against Vera Pau, emotional yelling at times, presumed, again alleged, and then a, a, a strong interest in the fitness of her players and wondered, well, is that not her just doing her job? I think all of us are thinking, like, that does not constitute misconduct. Do you think this is the beginnings of the HR world, the workplace world, trying to now control dressing rooms. Dressing rooms, I would actually say, could well be the very last realm <laughs> in the professional world that has no HR culture. Yeah. And I wonder if that's going to be sustainable for much longer. Yeah. And so you might now have to almost be, if you're delivering some tough words about weight, you might need a HR yeah, person with you. Most, like it might the go most that way. celebrated coaches and managers of all time I would say 90% of them would be up for bullying if it was a workplace. If and what's more, we romanticise it. Yeah. It's part of the folklore. So are you, like, are, will this, the beginnings of this or this, this development, or maybe, maybe it won't happen in the men's game, which could be uh, right or, rightly or wrongly, would this now give you pause for thought about your conduct? Because I've heard things about you. <laughs> I'm joking. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> can you give me, 
it had nearly, and this again is not maybe paint me the best light, it would nearly give me pause for thought in that, am I leaving myself open to something here? Sure. Rather than giving me pause for thought as to, am it's I being, right am I, yeah. yeah am I, now don't get, I'm not marching around the dressing room point and saying, you're fat and you're fat and you're fat. That's not what I'm saying here. Like, a basic phrase that would have been used yesterday when we were chatting, right, was that we have all this sports science and all of this, you know, we're taking all these different measurements. But as a rule of thumb, it's simple enough here, lads. If when you put on your jersey, the jersey is hanging off you, you probably need to beef up a little bit and we need to get you in and start doing a bit more weights on you. If you put on the jersey and the jersey is stuck to you and it doesn't feel comfortable on you, we probably need to look at what we can do to try and and shed a few pounds and maybe, you know, change the physique a little bit. Like... Am I not allowed? Are we not allowed to say that? Is I, that? Is that? Yeah, like the I, phrase I, I, used I, I, here is. I am a bit curious about our antipathy towards weight training because it's so common across the board now. Like you look at somebody like Mo Salah when he takes off his shirt, like the clearly. He's doing weights four or five times a week. You can yeah. tell that, that the condition of work. Like, and that's the norm across the board. But she's very anti weight She feels when it comes to females, yeah. it's the wrong thing to do in football because. Uh, she mentioned, she talked about with Nathan a little bit that, you know, weight training is great if you're moving in straight lines, but you have to be agile and you, you've got to twist and turn. And for the female body, she feels, you know, you're, you're, you're asking for an ACL injury. And mm-hmm. look, I mean, you'd be surprised. Thierry Henry, despite all appearances, never set foot in a gym. Yeah, just stunning. So, you know, maybe just playing football is enough. I'd give it over. Like the line itself, the, the, the first sentence, yeah. um, Vera Pau so shamed players. Yes. So what constitutes shame? Does does me saying that your jersey needs to look good and you needs to fit you appropriately? Is that me shaming the people who were standing in front of me whose jersey maybe doesn't fit them perfectly? Right. And then the second part, uh, Vera Pau shamed players for the weight and attempted to exert excessive control over their eating habits. Am I going to try and exert control over my players' eating habits? Yes. Yeah. Where, where, where is the excessive line? I don't know. At what line do I reach excessive? don't know. And, he, I, and, and as to your point about is it appropriate to say something anything about weight, I think it has to be appropriate to say something about a player's weight. Maybe the delivery of the message for certain players might have been OTT. I'm talking more, more generally than in, in this case. Like... So I pres- and we've uh, it's an extension of that great cliche of like well I can give that player a rollicking and this is a more of an armor and the shoulder mm-hmm. player. So I would presume there are certain players you could say absolutely things about their weight in the most offensive possible terms that, that you could imagine. And but and then there might be somebody else <laughs> that you just would need to no, be very careful over. One hundred percent. So there's a there's a judgment call maybe on how you talk to different players, or maybe you just have to, and maybe it'll go this way. You have to approach everybody with extreme caution and you now have to talk to everybody the way you would talk to the armour and the shoulder player. In which case, most coaches in the world will have to have a sit down, I would think, yeah. and reevaluate their communication, you know? Yeah. And the players will be looking at you and think you're ridiculous. You know, if the play, you know, if you're trying to be too nicey-nice and, and yeah. Molly Codlin, the players won't... Well, I don't know where it ends. Like, is bad language... Like, I can't go... An open plan office out there, if we all went out and started effing and blinding, there'd be a HR problem correctly. Mm. Is bad language still allowed in the dressing room? Mm. Certainly is, that's for sure, yeah. 20 years, will it be? Mm. <sighs> oh. And that's not... And I don't think... I'm not, I'm not tempting you to say, oh, the world's gone mad or the game's gone, but a lot of coaches will say that if, if what Vera Pau is accused of doing is now seen as... Crossing a major line. And then, again, to just to come back to it then, the fact that these accusations of something that I don't think <laughs> are, are something that exists, or I don't know what way to phrase it, but the fact that they're then in the same report as... Like, do we actually need to read out what the other people in the report are being accused that's of? That's sexual it's, misconduct. It's absolutely of a serious nature, yeah. Unbelievable. I know, I think everybody feels that's inappropriate. It shouldn't be in that same report. Um, but, again, to those players who spoke to the investigative team it's not something I presume anyone does lightly and they felt they had a mm. case and the investigative team agreed so we are at this strange impasse and mm. the FAI have made their decision and I don't know the, the tenure plays out and maybe in a couple of years time players and I also realise Joe like I've, I've I'm, I'm coaching them which young fellas underage team that we have, we have some fantastic girls playing on but that's you're talking about seven year olds there right I, I, I'm not stupid enough I do realise that if I was coaching 
an adult female team or, or a teenage female team, do I think the way I would talk to them and the terminology I would use would be different than in a men's dressing room? Yes, mm. I do. I, I absolutely do. But I don't think, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I just, I don't think you can't talk to them about it either or that any mention of it or any attempt to address any alterations that you're, you might be looking for them to make that you're, you just can't, can you just not do that? Well, she says she didn't even do that in the first place. Yeah, well, um, that side of it too. So that's, that's why it's very hard to reconcile the two, the two claims at the moment. Something has gone amiss on one side or the other. Uh, that's Fear Pow. So those two pieces, uh, Shane McGrath, The Mail on Sunday and Mick Foley. I have a couple of pieces jotted down here. So I'll let you fellas tell me where you want to go. Brief mention, it's Colm O'Rourke's last column in the Sunday Independent after 27 odd years. So he's reflecting on that. He obviously understands he can't really be me, the manager, and uh, criticising opponents in the Sunday Independent across next season. So it's a fond farewell. Colm O'Rourke signs off in the Sunday Independent. Some pieces you picked out. Carl Dennehy interviews Sean Tobin, who has a remarkable story. Uh, Mick Foley is wondering what's the moment of the year. And he talks about Katie Taylor in Madison Square Garden. The All-Ireland Club semi-finals are on this afternoon, Sunday, and there's a couple of good pieces I know that you liked, uh, Shane. So, uh, seeing as you have it open in front of you, Kieran, Mick Foley on the moment of the year. And for him, there is no doubt. And Katie Taylor won Sports Person of the Year, Personality of the Year, is it last night? Uh, Sports Person of the Year, yeah. I have to declare declare an interest because I'm one of the judges and I didn't vote for Katie. What did you vote for? I can't can't say. I I actually pushed for Katie um, two years ago when she got it. And... uh, But, um, no, there was somebody I thought had a stronger claim this time. Are you sworn to secrecy? Yeah. It's not self-imposed. There's rules around it, isn't there? It's not self-imposed. Well, nobody said to me, but uh, I I don't want to... uh, I'll tell you off off air. What were the contenders? And then we can guess... Oh, you know the top... There was a top ten, like Rory McIlroy, Reese McLenaghan, Josh van der Fleer, David Clifford, Kieran McGeehan. uh, So you thought it was McIlroy because you said his name first. No. No, I'm clever that way. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but but there is a strong... Like, I just saw this morning that um, ESPN have picked Serrano Taylor as their moment of the year. Not just in boxing, but, but that's wow. ESPN as their overall sporting moment of the year. And that shows the kind of impact that fight made. So I think she's a very worthy winner of this. And uh, Does that call your judgment into question? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'll explain off air why, why I voted for a certain person. But, uh, but um, like Mick makes a valid point here. It's why in a year filled with pioneering Irish sporting moments, Taylor's Night still towers above them all in terms of impact, reach, quality and epic scale. When Ring Magazine announces its annual award winners, this is remarkable now, for 2022, Taylor Serrano was ex- expected to claim four of the nine awards. I could not believe this. Best fight, best round, event of the year, most inspirational. And Ross Enemet is likely to be her tra- uh, trainer of the year, Katie that's, Taylor's that's trainer. Ring magazine yeah. are basically going to, to the Bible laud of this. Yeah. Laud of this is just the greatest boxing night of the year by considerable yeah. distance. Yeah, like it's the one... Um, you, you go to so many sporting events that you know they quickly fade from memory and really when you when a ball sounded if you write down a list of what you've watched over 20 to 30 years only you know five or six maybe are just you know out of this world and this is one of the only ones that uh i've genuinely gone oh i wish it was there you know i was supposed to be there for various reasons didn't happen but most of the time you think ah it would have been grand but like there'll be something else coming along. But that was, to me, watching the footage, it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And even funny enough, it just came up, I was flicking through YouTube, and for some reason, the clip came up, a suggested clip of the anthem being sung beforehand. And what struck me was not just the amount of women in the audience, but even the women of all ages, like literally from, I'll say, about 18 to 70. Like, uh, and the impact it had on them, like how emotional they looked beforehand and... Like, it goes way beyond boxing. Like a lot of these people, w- women and men, would never watch boxing outside of Katie Taylor, but she has touched something and done something that nobody else has in Irish sport. And for that, I think she's a very worthy sport person of the year. Despite Do you? <laughs> despite oh, everything. No, I, was, I, I was absolutely delighted. That, that paragraph that, that Kieran has read, I was delighted when I read that mm. because 
I it was for me excluding anything I was directly involved in it was without a doubt the, the biggest sporting moment of the year for me and the one that I got most excited about and but you feel are you watch you're obviously feel are you watching you know are you reflecting on a sporting event through partisan eyes um Whereas this is Ring Magazine telling us no. The fact that you thought, the fact that I thought it was the greatest fight I've ever, arguably ever seen, holds no weight. This holds weight. This holds proper, proper weight. Um, And I couldn't agree more with you, Kieran. Like I was, you know, in the moments after it, I put it back on then when, because it was middle of night, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah. I think I put put it back on then for, for my young lad when he got up and it was like, I was God, why why did it not occur to me to try and go to this? And I wouldn't be anywhere near the boxing fan that Kieran would. But I, I, I was so angry that I hadn't thought of And then, you know, we were saying, oh, sure, you know, I'm sure she'll have something coming up in Croke Park. Well, it's not going to be the same. Oh this God. was it. Like, yeah. this was the event yeah. to be at, without a doubt. Yeah, it is lovely to see we're not being parochial about this. So four of the nine awards will go to this fight in various guises. Um Carl Denny's interview with Chanter Bean. Yeah. We'll struggle to get through yeah, well, to, all of this. To, to explain it, it's impossible to explain quickly. I just urge people to read it. Like Sean, uh, Sean Tobin, like people in Irish athletics would know him, um, you know, as, as a, uh, he's been around the block in athletics for quite a while now, but he ran, he ran the, the South Pole, the, the Antarctic, what's it called? The Antarctic Marathon, is it? Yeah, what's the I official the title? Yeah. But, there, you know, basically, uh, this is very interesting. And he goes into his background and his motivations. And, you know, uh, there's a sad story, too, that Gary, his his half-brother, had a tough upbringing. Gary's mother was a drug addict. And Gary ended up t- uh, taking his own life, leaving behind an eight-year-old son. And, uh, you know, effectively, that's been a motivating factor for Sean Tobin, and he's been helped along the way by Phelan Kelly, who's one of the unsung heroes of Irish sport. Like, he, you know, he's a guy who got, Mar- he got Mark English, he coaches Mark English, coaches so many people, and he's doing it on, effectively on an unpaid basis. Uh, and, like, a little snippet like this, like, Kelly reviewed Tobin's training, spotted areas for improvement, and offered Tobin a place to stay at his home in Malahide to offload the burden of Dublin rent. Like, things like that, that he's gone above and beyond... Uh, and then there's an Italian uh, 46-year-old who also took part in this marathon uh, who lives in Galway, Marco Panfili. But it's his, he, he had a similar motivation and his brother Angelo had been killed in a car crash in, in Italy. Uh, so the, they became very friends. Like it goes into the detail of running a marathon is hard. Like running a marathon at the kind of pace these guys do is incredibly cruel to the body. To do it in Antarctic temperatures... And, uh, you know, your your feet going from under you, you know, you feel like you're going to go over your ankle every second. Like, it's just, it's mind-blowing. I think I would just make the point for anyone coming to this. The point here is not that, and this just happened last week, it's not that Sean Tobin has done it. It's that he has taken several seconds after mm. the mm. 2017 yep. record of uh, Mike Wardian, an American who cl- had clocked 2.54.54, which was the fastest ever marathon in Antarctica. So what's happened here in the last week is that Sean Tobin, an Irishman, is now the world record holder for fastest ever marathon in Antarctica. Yeah. So it's record-breaking. Yeah, and take, it, sorry, go on to... My take on this, Joe, is I've, I've ran the Dublin Marathon. Yeah. And 48 hours ago, I came back from Lapland where it was minus 23 degrees. Combine those two things together, how the hell is that possible? He was saying like you take a drink of water and it all just freezes on his beard uh. straight away, the little <laughs> droplets. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. And like, like there's a, uh, like Cahill has such trust from athletes uh, that he, I think he gets more out of them than most people do. Okay, because Yeah, yeah because uh, he was an athlete himself. He's just an outstanding writer and they know he gets it, I think. And there's a there's a, stre- a passage here, you know, down the back stretch in the quietest, roughest section. Tobin does something he'd never done before in a race. He asks for help. He thinks of his mother, who's been battling Parkinson's disease for several years. He thinks of his late brother. And then there's a quote, In my mind, I was speaking to him. I'm not a religious person. Faith has never been a thing, but you nearly feel like you're getting communication back. You're probably creating it in your head, but there were moments where I said, Come on, Gary, help me here. Get me there. It lifts you. You're thinking about him and you're like, let's get my head of my, out of my ass here. Let's get going. 
And the piece final, the final lines of the piece, you know, are just exceptional. And there's a quote again. I'll definitely leave here feeling more appreciation for the simple things, the people that I care for. I always found it hard to talk about my brother, but I went so deep there that finally I can let him go. Hmm. It's just outstanding. It's a very read, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. it's good. Uh, I'm sorry to do this, Shane. About 30 seconds, if even. (laughs) Uh, You thought the pieces on the All-Ireland Club semi-final, which are on today at Crow Park, were good? In in, in short, Joe, yeah, obviously there's the clash between the the Ballygunner and Ballyhale match, unfortunately clashing with the the World Cup. Um, And Philip Lanigan in his piece is essentially making the point of, yes, people are going to tune into TV to watch Messi, one of the greatest of all time, but also TJ Reid is probably an hour's drive from you, and he is one of the greatest of all time at what he does. Um, And then Dermot Crow has a very, very good piece with... uh, Kenneth Burke, St. Thomas's manager, who, as he makes the point, came into a job where they had won the last three in a row. Kind of, on one sense, you'd be thinking it's a good job, and in another sense, you'd be poison thinking <laughs> really a poison chalice. Um, has taken on, has won another two uh, Galway titles, which is not easily done, an incredibly competitive championship. Um, but suffered an absolutely heartbreaking loss in last year's All-Ireland semi-final. If you remember TJ Reid's goal in, in injury time yeah, yeah. in, in Thurles, it was a match I was at, was um, incredible and, and kind of bases it around the photo of his, his wife and his child coming out to try and comfort him at it. But here they are back at the same stage um, again today and, and, and trying to right the wrongs of, of that day and get themselves into into an All-Ireland final. It's, it's a very, very good read with a guy that's uh, that's a very, very nice guy and... and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly be cheering them on. The, the other game will be top class. Yes. The, the fact that it's clashing, it's a battle. I'm still sitting here. I haven't fully made my mind up what I'm doing. Uh, you have, really. I haven't. Really? Well, as in, I'm going across the croaker, I think. Oh, are you going to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, missed the World Cup final. I'll watch it on my phone as well. I'll have half an eye on it on my God. phone, I think. Good man. Live sport. Joe. Fair enough, fair enough. Shane Keegan of Cove Ramblers, Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star. Gents, that was great. Thank you so much. Back with the papers next week. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.